I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Hi everyone and welcome to the Power Platform Show. Today I have Ben Hoskins, he's a Senior Solution Architect at Power Objects currently. And we're going to talk about his consulting journey, blogging for many, many years. He's worked for three large consulting practices, global GSIs across his career. And so really want to dip into that and see lessons that we can all learn from his experience. Full show notes for this episode can be found at nz365guy.com forward slash 230. Hi Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. Good to have you on the show. You know, I've known you in the industry for many, many years now. You're a well-known name, often known as the Hosk or Ben Hoskins. And as I say, years ago, I first met you. I think you, as a not in person, but I think you you sent some questionnaire. You're 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 doing some interviews with MVPs way back in the day, and that's when you first were on my radar. So I know you've got a lot of experience, and I'd love to dig into a bit of that in the next few minutes on the show. But before we do get started, can you tell me where you live, work, and play? Okay, yeah. So I live in Solihull, which is near Birmingham in England. Currently work for Power Objects in, in the UK. And since COVID has appeared, I've been working from home and had a good couple of months of homeschooling and working. So what was the name of the area that you're in? It's uh, Solihull, which is about eight miles outside of Birmingham. Okay, okay, okay. Birmingham area. I don't know that. I'm not sure if I went to Birmingham, you know, because in the 18 months I was living in in London, I'm not sure that I got there and I definitely haven't heard of Solihull before. What's the best thing to do in Birmingham? Whew, that's a good, good question. <laughs> I guess the, we've got a, quite a lot of things to see. We've got a few zoos around and... From my point of view, we've got a lot of national trusts, which kind of, they do kind of walks and kind of classic old buildings, which they keep keep going and get people to view them. So yeah, there's a lot of those around here. So we get to go for a walk with the kids there. So a lot of history. Yes. Yeah. yeah there's quite a lot of history. Yes. It's good. It's the second biggest city in England, but it's more like lots of little towns sort of squashed together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. How did you land in technology? How did you do you find your way into to the career you're currently in? Yeah, I think I did. I wasn't really sure. I guess in the, when did I go to university? Around 96. So I think I'd been liked to play kind of computer games and stuff. And I kind of did IT, not programming at university. And then I got my first job and I was in a support desk for supporting supply chain software. I always think it's quite, it builds kind of character working on a on a support desk, dealing with, you never know what you're going to get, but dealing with supply chain questions is quite interesting way of learning it. And then in that company, that was a kind of stepping stone where you, you learn the product and then 
you could move to be like a consultant or a developer. So from there, I moved to be a Java developer and then continued being a Java developer for probably, well, six years and then moved to .NET and then found CRM4. Wow. Wow. So when you say you found CRM4, did you get like assigned a project or how did you, you know, start getting involved with it? Yeah, so they, we had, so we were .NET, we're delivering that, and then a customer wanted CRM4, and it kind of instantly appealed to me because I found when you're a .NET developer, you, you kind of did a lot of the, what I call boring framework plumbing stuff, like doing security and authentication and setting up databases, and all this kind of, was kind of stuff you needed to do to create an application. And then when I saw like Dynamics, it did all that for you and you could just concentrate on creating the business functionality that the the business wanted so you could skip all that other stuff and like now it's even better because i don't have to worry about servers or keep maintaining them you can just use it it and it does what you need to and you just gives you more time to focus on you know turning the requirements into solutions so is that what led you to kind of stay with it rather than continue down the dot net path as your sole focus I take it that one project obviously morphed into another project and before long you were doing it all the time. What was that journey for you? Yeah, so it started, it was CRM4, which was a bit interesting to deal with. And then CRM 2011 came out and then I I was doing a a project for that. And it was, I just thought it it was a great way to create, create solutions quickly. And you didn't, I also didn't like to do as a developer, I don't like doing front-end like stuff to make it look good. I just wanted to, to do it. So CRM also took the, or Dynamics took all the pain out of that. So you could create the forms, not always the prettiest, but you could do them and they were functional and they worked. And then it had just lots of hooks to create other customizations around, you know, and then since then, Microsoft has sort of consistently improved it. And, you know, you get more more functionality, whereas now, you know, what what used to take weeks to sort of create plugins and code, you can now do with flows and power apps, you know, in, in hours or days. And with the connectors, everything's connected in as well. So you can just really create, it's not about how do I do this? Can I do this? It's, you know, what, what do they, what does the project need and, and what options should I use to do that? So it's just a, it's a much quicker way. And, I think also the people in Dynamics, the projects are different because you work very closely with the customer. So you can you get their requirements, you're discussing it with them, and then you can you can almost like create a quick prototype or the real thing, and then get their feedback because you know, it's almost impossible really to capture requirements in user stories or, or like on paper because you need people need to see it and use it to understand. You know, is this going to work for me? Does it? Does it do what I want? Because people are not very good at saying what they want, but they're good at identifying what they don't want once you've made it. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. At, kind of at what point did you decide this was going to be my career? As in that you're going to really, this is the tech you're going to double down on rather than, you know, there's there's a massive tech landscape out there. At what point did you consciously go, you know what, I'm I'm going to now seek a career or develop my skills around this, and this is going to be my career moving forward? I think it was definitely around the CRM 2011, because I thought this, it was at that time, it wasn't as kind of popular as it is now. It was a sort of a more of a niche 
because .NET development was probably more popular and more common. And this that was a kind of a new technology. So I thought this is a, a good opportunity to learn that. So I, I did. I, I, was, I was doing dynamics at work and then outside of work. I thought, how do I speed up my learning? So I did the certifications. So I did all the CRM4 and the CRM2011, all of the certifications for those. And then I would write blogs to learn as well. So I was trying to learn inside work and outside of work to kind of speed speed it along. I also felt that the projects kind of worked towards my strengths a bit more where I like to sort of be involved with people and worked together with people. And so the dynamics projects tend to be sort of more agile and, and work that way. So those kind of, you could develop fast on top of dynamics and you could work with the customers. And then so I, I just could continue to work in that way and then since then dynamics has improved as well so that it delivers much bigger projects now than at the start and so it's yeah it's kind of it's good because it gives you the opportunity to work on big projects and deliver those so yeah it's, a, it's around 2011 <laughs> CRM 2011 and that's where I kind of kept going I even worked through the 2013 where it kind of took a nosedive when Microsoft went a bit bonkers kind of with Windows 8 and CRM 13 kind of took a step back almost. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Before COVID, let's let's just wind back a few months. What was your typical day, week, month in the office like? What did it consist of? What kind of activities would you be doing? What would be a typical day that you could define? So my roles were on the project, so we're usually kind of three or four days on site and then one or two days off site. So, and the projects I tend to, the last three projects have tended to be quite big. So, one with the, was two and a half years, another was a year, and then this last one is six months. So, they're often teams of teams. So, it's a lot of sort of catching up with everyone and making sure, as a kind of senior person on the project, you want to make sure that everyone is kind of doing following the plan doing what they need to do and if they're if they're kind of we've got any troubles or problems you know how do we resolve those as a team so it's kind of a stand-ups you have a few stand-ups usually one with after <laughs> my roles are often solution architect scrum master so it'd be kind of stand up with kind of my scrum team and then another stand up with the other scrum teams they'd, they'd often be like three or four other scrum teams working at the same time so you need to make sure we've got ever got any common problems of do we need to help each other do you have any dependencies with the other with the other teams and then making sure that we've kind of we've got the plan that we're not it's usually like dealing with any problems on big projects you tend to have big big problems so it'd be kind of those type of things making sure we're all working together really and then sort of working with the the customer to showing them usually the product owner showing them what we're doing clarifying the stories i always like to get the stories clarified and sort of set up front so we both have an agreement of really what we're doing and it's better to change a story than it is to do the work and change the the work and go back so those kind of things and then for the the teams we often have kind of work between for the like power objects or capture night before me you know collaborating as a team together sort of creating those best standards demoing you know i think that teams should be kind of like a hive mind because 
what you want to avoid is everyone making the same mistakes. You know, you want to be sharing the knowledge so that, you know, if there's a best practice that we can all do it, all pick that up. And if there's things to avoid, then one person makes the mistake, shares the knowledge and we all avoid it. So that kind of collaborating and trying to get some benefits of work, uh, being a part of a big team and sharing the knowledge. So, so when you say you're working on site, you're talking about physically being in the customer's premise, I take it? Yes, yeah. Usually for th- three, three or so days a week, you'd be on site working with the customer, kind of collaborating with them. Mm-hmm. Which is definitely the typical consulting type model, right? And in the companies I've worked in, generally, you know, I would see staff go out on a project and I might not see them for nine months or a year <laughs> or, or longer, right? Because they go from their home and their office becomes really the customer's office. But of course, that's all changed with COVID. Tell me, how has that changed? Because I wanted to kind of get this flip view. What is your work day now and work life now being that, you know, you're predominantly, I assume, working from home? Yes. Yeah, so Power Objects and the parent company, HCL, kind of I think it must have been like four months said you know we're no one's going to the office or any office now so yeah there's a lot more meetings so I sometimes have kind of struggled to have lunch because you're <laughs> trying to find that time to have to have your lunch find a spare 30 minutes in there but it's involving yeah a lot so you kind of have meetings with with the customer with your team to try to make sure that we're all collaborating and and it's yes yeah, interesting because you can not even see people, so we've been trying to take steps to sort of turn our turn on our video cameras to see each other, and try and have just a session where we're just talking about like things at the end of day, non work related stuff because you lose all that. So I, I kind of been thinking it must be it works quite well for a t- if you've been together on a team for a few months. I think it'd be really tricky if you joined a company and you only worked remotely because you kind of would lose that use the uh, the opportunity to get to know your work colleagues you know outside of work you know what do they like to do because you need to build relationships to to work efficiently together you kind of need to know each other so that you can you know talk openly and honestly with each other and without having the relationship with anyone it'd be kind of much more difficult to do and then all this other extra knowledge you get from people who kind of they just tell you things about the company or the project that you don't always sort of aim to get, but they, they sort of appear naturally or organically. And so there's sort of less less of that happening at the moment. But on the plus side, there is less commuting. So, so, so interesting, you know, I've run teams that have been multi-geographied and, you know, very agile-driven, scrum-driven. And what we found worked effectively is at the start of a project – even though the team members were uh, multi-geographied, we'd bring them into the same geography. So we'd take them, for example, to the customer's site, fly them in. And for around the first week to two weeks, we would have all the teams working in the same location. And this is for a project that would, you know, go well beyond a year, even mold you know, a couple of years in length. But what we found was that that created that really good gel. So therefore everything was done with video cameras on afterwards for everyone back in their, their general locations. And you're right, there's a cementing of relationship done in that two weeks where they, you know, ate, drink and, you know, 
probably partied a bit together as well, that then kind of set the foundation for the following period of time, which was was incredible. How do you think we handle that going forward where we might not be able to have those kind of on-site bringing the team together and, and new projects are going to kick off from the start with remote teams? Yeah, I mean, it is going to be a challenge. It's also, it's, it works, there's like two elements to it. One, there's your own team in terms of the, the people there. And in my current, we're kind of 50-50 in terms of onshore and offshore. So we have that already. But there's also working with the customer because you you need to have trust in a project that that they sort of feel that, that you're giving them good advice and that they're going to sort of go with your decisions or you're going to help guide them with the best options and so and and things like that so it's almost i think you need to you need to do that remotely and and have kind of session ice breaking sessions i always remember that some of the best things of, of when i was a scrum master we'd have our retrospectives and then during that process we'd i'd get people everyone to draw a picture of how the sprint went with a theme so we'd do i think we did films and then so we had people drawing like lion king and sort of during these quite awful pictures but it was it was quite funny and then we'd also like sh- kind of try and share some piece of information like your first your first kind of worst job or the first music you bought and these kind of these kind of facts actually gave us sort of things to unite over because we'd we'd know these sort of random amusing facts about each other that that sort of made you laugh and uh, gave everyone a connection together i think the more the COVID goes on, or and the more remote working we do, I think that like like you're saying here that that this will become more important, and people will take more time to do things like this to to create opportunities for people to get to know each other and build those relationships, and for a more effective kind of remote working. I think that's part of the part of it we'll have to start doing at the moment. I'm not. I think it's a lot of the teams are probably already already created and they've already done this so it's not as important but in the future I think there will be more emphasis on this because you'll find the, the best teams with the ones who have a really good connection and they will work better together. It, it is definitely going to be interesting. You've worked, you've worked across your career for some of the biggest global players in the market in, in the power platform space, you know KPMG, Capgemini, PowerObjects. What are the lessons you've learned working you know as in what are key kind of lessons that you've learned or key takeaways you've learned with working with these big type of implementation partners yeah so it's i think some of the the key lessons are like big projects you have to deliver in a different way to small projects if you try to deliver a big project in the same way as a small one you'll you'll end up in trouble you're creating kind of technical debt uh, there's always a, a focus on projects that is about sort of productivity and meeting deadlines but i kind of view things a different way i think it's about quality and if you keep doing things right and creating high standards working to create quality then these will these steps will not slow you down later on whereas if you kind of try to go really fast quickly you, you'll end up sort of often creating shortcuts and creating things that will slow you down later on and so some of the, the things like the devops in the project automate all the builds and and releases 
creating standards so that everyone really knows what to do and the quality that we're expecting and sort of not to drop those at any point. I think to big projects, there's a, a big emphasis on the senior people and the ability to lead is is really necessary on those big projects because the technical problems are, are usually um, more straightforward. You have sort of a technical, something technical, like technical requirements, and you've got to deliver those and you can work those out. But it's the people, the people issues, the projects that have gone wrong. It's usually around people. That's where it comes. And also you want to keep your team engaged and you want to leverage the team because I've seen projects where you have some people who want to make all the decisions and they just become a huge bottleneck. And when you've got a lot of people there on a project, it's very expensive to create bottlenecks around people. And you want to help people improve and and be really engaged and in, and sort of give everyone the information they need and feel part of the team. And not that they're just sort of being told what to do, actually... You want the ideas from all of the team because if you've got a lot of different perspectives, you're going to create a lot better ideas from that collection of people, especially if they're all engaged and enthused. So that that's a key part. And I think the one of the most important things, I think, is the relationship with the customer because projects are a, a collaboration, basically. You've got the business experts, the customer, the technical experts, and the sort of project experts of the company coming in but you have to you can't be too too much emphasis on one side you have to meet you have to be equal partners and create this and there should be a lot of focus on that and even in this the extent of you need to how you present ideas and findings back to the customer it has to be has to give them confidence that you're doing the right things and sometimes these aren't always aren't always kind of the emphasis is not put on that. It's just sort of, we'll do this and we'll do our work and we maybe don't need to show the customer. But actually, you need to show them, really get them on board because in a project, there's going to be constant changes all the time. You need to be improving all the time and that's going to take a lot of decisions which you've got to do with the customer. I think my final thing is that every project is different. And so even though some things worked on your previous project, it doesn't mean they're going to work on this new project because you've got different people, different skills, different industries. And so you've got to find what works on this project. How do we work here? Because I've, I've seen, and like, how do we get to an agreement of what we need to do and how do we get things signed off and moved forward? And I've, I've seen lots of different ways to do that, but you kind of need to find the way that's going to work on your project and not just the way that worked on your previous project. So what what have you found has worked effectively for you when it comes to staying one step ahead of your customers? So how do you keep up with technologies? How do you keep up with industries that you might be operating in, right? Because there's, you know, there's always multi-parts to any project. There's an element of knowing the technology. There's you've got to get a clear understanding of the customer's industry, and and then there's the nuances or the soft skills of of any you know day to day project from the project implementation methodology to as you you know you talked about application lifecycle management there making sure that that's standard base and you're putting out a quality product. How do you personally keep developing your own skills in all these areas to make sure that you are always on point? 
you know, as I say, one step ahead of where your customer is wanting to go and maintain your level of authority on the subject so you can, you know, consult effectively? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a good question because the dynamics and power platform is always changing quite, is very quickly. So making sure you're delivering the best solution to uh, their requirements is, is, is quite challenging. I think that the focus initially should be understanding the industry that they're working in, understand the business, how it works, how do they win, you know, what is the, not just what they're doing, but what is the purpose behind all these steps they're taking? Because you want to avoid just recreating their old system because, you know, that's the common thing is that you ask when you're gathering requirements, they tend to basically say how the old system works but that old system was created around the strengths and the functionality of the previous product so we don't want to recreate that but you can't create a sort of a better system or a system that's going to help them the customer a lot if you don't understand the purpose behind it how everything works you know and and what are they doing why are they doing it so then once you understand start to understand those things you can then when you see the requirements, you can actually start to to improve them and say, you know, do we actually need to do that? And I think the solution is tr- always trying to keep things as simple as possible and deliver what they need. And it's avoiding kind of creating wish lists of stuff that they would be nice. You know, what is the minimum stuff that you actually really need? And let's focus on that because you want to keep it a as simple as possible too aligned to out of the box because that's going to be less testing less problems less maintenance and and then you want to avoid adding extra features because they they kind of clutter it up they add complexity and they slow the whole project down because getting projects to be delivered on time means controlling the scope and delivering aligning their requirements to out of the box and to do that you need to know what is out of the box you know what does it do and that's why I always think it's a benefit for people to do the certifications in Dynamics. You know, you know the breadth of what it does and Power Platform now. You know what it does. When's a good time to use that, and not because the danger is that you'll, if you don't learn new stuff, you're not keeping ahead. Then you'll just keep falling back into what you know and what you're comfortable with. But that that may not be the best solution. You need to you need to adapt to the new environment, which is sort of constantly changing. So how do you keep up with that learning? Like, you know, as you say, you know, when you and I first started in this technology, there was, you know, if you're just dealing in CRM, there was one application that had three modules, you know, customer service, marketing, and sales. And, you know, you could learn the technology and for three years, it wasn't changing, right? There'd be some patches and some updates and things like that, but not really any quantum change. Nowadays, there's around 30 applications in the suite of products. You know, there's always something, you know, 800 odd features per year coming out in the applications, you know, in two trunks a year. How do you maintain your technology edge? Yeah, so I there are a few ways. So one of the best ways, I think, is learning from people in your own company or in the community. It's always useful to to hear about technology being applied in real life examples because then you've got a real understanding of what it can do and how it's used and you know what problems someone else used it to sort of 
or what requirements they used it to deliver to. So, you know, and everyone has people are kind of useful. They're walking walking information and examples of 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 new technology. So I, I was trying to use my colleagues. LinkedIn is seems fairly good, useful now. It puts uh, apart from it puts millions of people passing certifications, but <laughs> in amongst those, there's a lot of good useful information. Uh, Twitter, I, I follow like a few. I have a list of people, or, and then I have a few keywords. I kind of follow those as well. And conferences used to be is are quite good going to those. There's lots of different presentations. You can get a good idea of what new stuff's coming in. Yeah, and then I get it's yeah, just searching out those searching out the interesting articles and interesting stuff. I mean, in Dynamics and Power Platform is is quite fortunate where. It's always had a lot of people sharing a lot of stuff that they're doing day to day. So you can see these examples and it's sort of looking out. I mean, Microsoft have a few examples, but they're, they seem a bit sort of forced. It's, it's those real life examples. Like I saw a good one about, so I was wondering about kind of bots and those chatbots and things like that. And it's, someone said that they, they had an example where, it's someone I was interviewing actually, he said that it was like right move or so and they would have people would come to the website and they'd have a bot and it would just ask them a few simple questions like are you actually looking for a property now and if they said yes they'd ask another question and then they'd put them through to a real person and leave the people alone so it was they'd have a thousand people visit like every hour and using this bot they could get the top hundred people and put them to a person and it's sort of like that is a really useful way of using that to sort of filter, basically get the top, the hot leads and put them through to someone. And then you can, that person can try and sell to them rather than waste your time trying to pick out of all a thousand and sort of trying to get them all there. So those kind of examples are really useful of how we can use the best, how we can use technology in really ways that to its strengths. Mm-mm-mm. Do you have any kind of techniques that you use when you're, when you're moving onto a project in a, let's say a totally new industry, is there anything that you go, you know what, I need to kind of understand the lingo of this industry or, you know, I need a kind of high level to, but to some detail understanding of how this industry operates. What are your kind of tools, techniques that you use to get enough industry knowledge under your belt to be able to, you know, go toe to toe with a customer? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the key the key point is using the same language as as the customer because each industry has its own way of of speaking and even like dynamics has its own way of speaking in entities and and that there's always a, at the start of a project the customer doesn't often understand what you're saying because you're speaking in dynamics language and it's it's not always words that everyone uses and then also the customer doesn't use so it's, i often look for see if they've got any business processes and see if you can find those and i often look at different cust their website and different other customers website in the same industry and seeing what they're doing and and how understanding how they do business you know how do the good companies win what's their goal and and look for the language that they're using there and and trying to pick it up i think once you understand the goal of an industry then you can start to think about how the solution could work because I've often you see that people who don't take the time to look at the industry and how it works and the language 
their requirements are, are written technically and they and they miss lots of bits out because they don't understand what they really what it really needs to do Mm-mm-mm. yeah totally makes sense you know if you're to look at looking glass and your experience of the last 10 years and looking forward at the next 10 years for microsoft biz apps where do you where do you see it going what are what are areas that you're you know think predict is going to happen and and going to be focuses for you so i think the companies really seem to be embracing the no code low code solutions that we're coming up with and i think there's a change whereas before it used to be kind of big large applications big large dynamics applications that did lots of stuff and then you'd start to bolt other things inside that well i think they they could change now because even like environments don't you only pay for your data now so the number of environments you have have changed but instead of creating these big large apps people will be creating maybe lots of more smaller focused apps and then sort of a solution will be made up of lots of different smaller apps and then you can connect them up with connectors much more easily and i think companies will start to actually do their work pick up this work themselves and start to sort of build some in-house skills in there once they realize actually to create your own apps and power apps and flows it doesn't you just need to think about what you need to do and then you can connect them up but this may also cause a bit of problems because part of the discipline of being a a consultant or and especially a developer is that you create things in a consistent way which means that when you sort of scale up you can still do it whereas you may have companies who created lots of different things themselves and then actually find they've got themselves in a bit of a tangle with things overlapping and rather than have one sort of maintainable collection that's sort of standardized you could have lots of different different quality different ways of doing stuff and then it'll actually be quite difficult to maintain all that so then maybe the projects will be come in and sort of simplify this collection of stuff into a more standard approach and then maybe once after that's done you'll, you'll sort of the cognitive services and ai and, and bots or maybe they'll start to come in and be used more so people might fear that that could replace people but i think it's different really they they help they help do the more boring stuff to allow people to do what they're good at which is kind of the relationships and direct contact with people so kind of how i see things going but yeah i'm not quite sure i've (laughs) i've not seen too much it still seems to me that people are trying to just implement the out of the box sort of get their system up before moving on to this kind of ai cognitive services and those machine learning type of stuff to add on but i think maybe these will be a bit easier in the future so perhaps we'll see more of that stuff yeah true true one of the things is to say, you know, I was down in New Zealand years ago when I first came across you, you operating in the UK, and you've always been somebody that's been quite prolific online in the community. Tell me, what's your experience with the community and how you engage with the right wider community, sharing your knowledge, that type of thing? I think that's always been one of the real bonuses of Dynamics and now Power Platform is that the community is very, very helpful. You know, you don't and it's full of people contributing. You know, when I started out, 
in like 2010, there wasn't lots and lots of people there. There, was, there wasn't loads of blog posts or information. Maybe now, maybe we've got the opposite. There's there's so much, it it's, takes more time to find the really good bits. Yeah, I mean, I always found that I just wanted to share my knowledge. I thought the purpose was to sort of help me learn. I think, And I think the best way to learn is to teach people. And that's kind of what I was doing on my blog. I also use it as kind of like an online brain where, where all these problems I had, I would put on there. And then if I forgot, I could go back and search. <laughs> it's much easier to search my blog than search my brain yeah. sometimes. So it was good to put all those things on there. Again, I just, I think I just kept trying to consistently create material and, and learn things and share, share my knowledge. So you've you've obviously had a lot of engagement with the community. You're well known in it, and you know I'm big on personal branding. Did you intentionally go out to build a brand? And what have you kind of lessons learnt from that journey? See, I had a kind of few phases really. Initially, I, I was just trying to kind of create content and build up my following, and I did that by posting a lot, but. And initially it was posting, it was like sharing key updates and sharing other people's blogs. And I, and that it was, that was useful when it was, it was high, it was putting those good posts and good information into people. But I got to a point where I thought, what's the goal of my blog? And it was actually, it was to help me learn and to help other people. So I kind of changed then to go just to focus on writing more quality pieces and bits where I would learn more and where I would need to do more thinking. I'd often use it as a term to to think about how things had gone on a project, you know, and the effects of some decisions and what would I do differently and and sort of work out how I would like to do things if I could do things again. So I would aim to create more useful posts at that point it's like do i want to be known as someone who just creates lots of stuff and highlights other people's stuff or do i want to be someone who creates good stuff myself so i thought i'd be better to create good stuff myself where i would get more benefit out of it and other people would get more benefit out of it so i kind of tried to create more timeless posts like i think a good blog post is one that's good today and good in a year's time because you can come back and think, yeah, that's still actually really useful. So I kind of aim, tried to aim to do that and just try to write often, I think, because I didn't want sort of perfect to be the enemy of good. I'd like to just get give yourself a sort of a deadline and get something out there, you know. And a lot of people initially get a bit worried, I think, to sort of release stuff and think about, you know, the, maybe the criticism they'll get or other people may think it's not very good, but I think just get it out there and actually you'll find there's not much to worry about. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. I like it. How do you, what about social media, particularly, you know, if you look at the various channels you had, you touched on LinkedIn and Twitter before, YouTube. If somebody's new coming into this industry and they're, they're creating content on their own blog, and sometimes it can be overwhelming to look at all the different social media channels. What's your advice? You know, is it stick with one and, and become a master of one and, and maybe listen on the others? What's what's your experience with social media? I think it's about what works for you and how, because I did sort of YouTube for a bit, but then I found it took 
more effort to create videos. It's sort of more concentrated effort, whereas I never got enough time to do that, I found. So whereas writing, you can write a bit, do some other stuff, and then write a bit more. So I kind of did that. And I think so then I, yeah, you, I think you try things and see if they work and see if the tools fit with you. And then doing that, I found that I think Twitter, I like Twitter because you can tweet stuff and you can just, you get, you can just sort of fire and forget about it in a way, but you can, and you can watch to see how many people are, if it's, is it being effective? Am I, you know, writing the right things? Am I appealing? And you can join communities and and find out the what me what social media works for you. But don't, I would say, don't worry about it too much. It takes time, so you just kind of got to keep uh, plugging away, build up a following. And if you know if if you want people to come and consume whatever you're creating, then you need to give them a reason to do that. So and what the best way to do that is to create a habit. So you know if you create posts, you know every week then people will get into that habit and they can come and consume that in the, as part of their weekly uh, weekly habits. So just want to be consistent and give it time and, and don't worry. Don't try and do things too quickly because it, it, it does take time for, for you to build up a kind of following and that happens by sort of creating a lot of good content where people actually want to come and read your stuff or listen to your things. I like it. It's been interesting talking to you. I always like to finish these sessions with a, some quick-fire questions. So are you ready for your random questions? <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's your first one. Which piece are you when you play Monopoly? Ooh. What's your favourite piece? I think it's the, is it the top hat. The top hat? Nice, nice. The bowler hat, right? It's a bowler hat. Oh, no, it's yeah. a top hat. It's a, it's a top hat. You're right, you're right. No, it is a bowler hat. Oh, okay, I, I can't. <laughs> I think it is a bowler hat. It is a bowler hat. Anyhow. If you could only drink one type of alcohol for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, easy beer. That's pretty much what I only drink. <laughs> what's What's the worst job you've ever had? It was working in a, it's kind of like a shop that sold towels and and other things and pillowcases. And I just remember folding lots of doilies and towels <laughs> and working with three old ladies. Classic. What's had the biggest impact on your life like a book a teacher a mentor what jumps to mind there's probably been a, a quite a few good people there's two books i like reading so there's what's his name boys chris voss about negotiating i uh, yep never and, split the difference yes yeah and it's about having empathy that kind of really made a difference to me because it was before you kind of like you'd want to I'd like to like force the conversation, but actually it's maybe more about listening to other people and asking, asking open questions. And the, one of the best things he's taught me is that open questions are how and what. And if you ask those, people have to think about your answer. And another really good book was Essentialism. And it's just about what is essential because there's a, there's a time where I just found I was doing lots and lots of stuff and more and more stuff. And I, I kind of give myself too much stuff to do and then I kind of stepped back and thought, you know, what is actually essential here? What what things can I stop doing? Should I stop doing? And, you know, that kind of made a, a big difference to my life, I think. So you could just stop doing those other things and focus more on the on the stuff that's going to be helpful to me and what I should be doing. Excellent. We'll try and get the links to those in the show notes. Would you rather win a lottery or live twice as long? Oh, I'd probably live twice as long. I don't... 
don't need lots of money. <laughs> what are you most looking forward to in the next 10 years? I guess probably my kids getting older <laughs> so I can go out again. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Back to like life where you didn't have the dependencies, so to speak. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Ben, before you go, tell us where can people find your content online? You know, where do you recommend if they want to check you out, get to know you a bit more, where should they go? I usually, just, <laughs> I usually type in host CRM to get to my blog, <laughs> host dynamics blog. And I think Ben Hosk on Twitter and probably find me on LinkedIn as well. They're probably the best ways. Hey, thanks again for joining me on today's Power Platform show. You know, full show notes for this episode can be found at nz365guy.com forward slash 230. I'm your host, business applications MVP, Mark Smith, otherwise known as the NZ365 Guy. If you've not had a chance or you've not taken the opportunity to give me some feedback, you know, and specifically, I'd love an iTunes review if you're up for it. And if you go to nz365guy.com forward slash iTunes, I'll take you straight to the, the page that you can leave a review. You'll need a an Apple ID, you know, to, to jump in there. I'm sitting at 18 reviews, yet none of them actually show up. And I think the threshold might be 20. So if you want to be one of those two people that could put me over the edge with a review, that would be fantastic because I'd love them to actually show up on the profile. But it's a bit of a black art, this area of podcasting. Nobody knows the number or the, the trigger point that Apple uses to, to post those reviews. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye for now. See you next time. Yeah.